The technology landscape is exploding, and it has never been a better time to be an entrepreneur. There's so much information out there, it can be hard to know where to start or who to trust. Your host, David Paul, is a seasoned venture capital investor that has founded his own investment firm, DWP Capital. He's a straight shooter that cuts through all the noise to bring you real and authentic conversations with investors, founders, and operators in the startup ecosystem. Join him each week to stay current with today's trends and get smarter about startups and tech investing. Hey, everybody. This is David Paul, the host of the Capital Stack podcast, where we talk to entrepreneurs, founders, investors about all things value creation and startups. Today, I am talking to the chairman and co-founder of Full Bay, which is an ERP for commercial repair shops around the country and internationally. And uh, Jacob, how you doing, man? Hey, David. Good. Great to be here. And uh, you're super excited about this, right? Yeah, of course. Okay. You look super excited. Oh, I am. And you're growing a beard? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and, I willed this into existence just yeah. for this because I thought it'd be on camera. <laughs> That's good. You really have a strong chin. Thank you. Yeah. No, it's good. Thank it's you. really good. Just wait till I lean down a little bit. And then, yeah, <laughs> okay. Sharpen it. Okay. So why don't you tell the audience a little bit about Full Bay, you, your story, the start of it, and uh, we can go from there. Yeah. So I majored in accounting in college and- did that as a career. When I graduated, I came to Arizona actually to join Deloitte and Touche right out of school. Did that for a couple of years with the full intention of going and getting a doctorate in accounting and being an accounting professor and doing that life. Right. And God, that's sexy. Tell me about it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like a doctor in accounting. <laughs> hey, I know some really sexy people that are accounting professors, Okay, um, okay. you know, in, the, in their own way. Uh, ended up switching to Ernst & Young and um, my last year in public accounting. And I, I got into some good programs and I, I was going to go to University of Arizona just to be close to family here in the state and ended up a month before my program started calling up Dan Dellywall, who is the chair of the uh, School of Accounting down there at the time and letting him know I won't be coming. And I feel bad about that because I took up a slot, right? Uh, you know, they give you, um, you know, when you do, when you're doing your doctorate in a field like that, they don't charge you tuition and they actually pay you a little bit to like help sustain oh, you. Like where you go get it. So, so there was an empty slot because of me that year, but I kind of came to this realization that I would, I would rather make a run at trying to do business rather than spend my career teaching it. Mm -hmm. Not that there's anything wrong with teaching it, but I really wanted to see if I could do it. Sure. My background growing up was my dad was a school teacher mm -hmm. and I really didn't have any role models in the business world at all growing up. I had great role models, but nobody that I could follow. So uh, when I was in college, a friend of mine and I were business majors and we noticed a lot of the entrepreneurs that they would come in and have speak to us were accounting majors. And so we both switched to accounting at the same time. And uh, he, uh, he ended up at KPMG and he, he was an early employee at Clearwater Analytics, which just went public. So mm -hmm. he did well. Um, and I followed the same path, but I didn't have the role models, like I said. So I went into accounting and was kind of going to get into academia just because it was safe. And, you know, accounting professors do okay financially. They can um, make some money consulting as well, but I just couldn't do it. So left public accounting and went to work for a company in Scottsdale, Carefex, software for 
hospitals, electronic med- electronic medical records. So how, we big, had, how big were they? They were about f- when I got there four or five million okay. in revenue. So I came in as the controller, you know, the first kind of CPA real hire in there, and uh, got things uh, tidied up a little bit. And we we grew that thing from say five to twenty five thirty million until we sold it in 2011 to L3 Harris. It's now known as L3 Harris. At the time, it was Harris Corporation out of Melbourne, Florida. And that was a great exit. We sold it for $155 million. And uh, I think we had $30 million into it, invested into it. Mm-hmm. Maybe a little bit more through a note. And I stuck around for a year, and I was going to go work for... Tell me if this is getting boring, but I was going to go work for uh, another medical records company called Epic in... Wisconsin actually yeah. accepted a position with them and they're family owned. Uh, yeah. Well, it's Judy Faulkner, I think is right. like the big one. Yeah. And big star Trek fan, uh, apparently. So I went out there, met them and so forth, but I had, a, they do great work and so forth. So I don't mean to, uh, demean the work that they're doing, but I remember sitting in the office of their former CFO who was kind of overseeing their campus construction, just talking about some of my ideas of how, you know, software theoretically could be used as a tool for healing, right. Rather than just billing. Cause that's kind of the dirty secret of electronic medical records as most of them are built for billing people, not healing people. Right. Yeah. And he showed some reluctance, you know, um, to mess with the secret sauce. They didn't really want to do that. And I was being brought on to help with their expansion into the EMEA region. And uh, I had some experience with that from Carefax. And I used to live over there in Austria. So I speak German. Um, Anyway, that kind of turned me off to kind of going that direction, the big company direction. Yeah. yeah, So you uh, were talking to them about a kind of a grander vision about... Uh, a direction that EHR could go as far as, you know, treating people, not, you know, capturing revenue. Yeah. Cause if you talk to the clinicians, so doctors, nurses, the clinicians who actually use the EMRs at the point of care, very few of them like it. So they, they'll have like very choice, harsh, caustic words for whether they're using, you know, Epic Cerner or something else. And I know there's a lot of good people doing a lot of great work at Epic Cerner and these other places trying to make it better and so forth. But it seems like even today, there's an opportunity for someone to come in and disrupt it and just go for the jugular and actually put in a tool that is built specifically for healing people and can capture, you know, billing codes and so forth at the same time. But that's not the the thrust of it. That's not how it was built. No. And when you think about the number of accidental deaths or deaths due to judgment errors in medicine. I mean, it's one, 200,000 a year in the U S and psychology research shows that the more you force people to process in their head and keep things organized in their head, the worse their judgment gets. And so when you have a clinician being forced through these terrible workflows and they hate it, they're using up a lot of brain power that otherwise could be used to care for patients. And so you got to think that a portion of those medical error related deaths are attributable to bad medical records, bad medical record systems. And so, you know, from what I'm hearing, you're not really talking like an accountant anymore. You're, <laughs> well, you're talking about, you're talking about product. You're I got talking lucky. about markets. You're talking about problem sets. You sound like a founder. I got lucky. Yeah. So I got lucky at Carefax be- because the day before we closed the transaction with Harris, I was able to bring on one more person, somebody I worked with at Deloitte, to basically take over my job because I knew I 
probably didn't want to stick around and I didn't want to be tied down. They put me on a one year golden collar thing, you know, mm-hmm. like a less than a $20,000 bonus or something like that. But for me at the time, it was definitely worth it to stick around. And Epic was actually waiting several months for that to mature. They're patiently waiting for me. So they gave me the offer. I accepted it several months before I was going to start, uh, which, you know, makes it all the more egregious that, uh, that I ended up backing out of it. Mm-hmm. So once again, I, disappointed in organization I took up a slot <laughs> I felt bad but meanwhile I had met uh Brad and Heidi uh Janenga and Paul and Andy who's the CEO they were recruiting Andy Hurd to the board at WebPT and um Andy ended up not being able to do it but Andy made the introduction and I started talking to them and I ended up backing out of the epic thing and going to work for WebPT as their first kind of finance hire right to run the finance side of things there and that was, I took a pay cut and a title like demerit or whatever. And I don't really care that much about titles anyway, but I saw by that time, you're right. I was getting more product oriented because I hired that other guy to take over my role. I was able to start getting more and more into the product, reading white papers about what could be done in medical records with software and wasn't seeing the light of day because of HIPAA or these massive incumbents who weren't willing to innovate. And I don't know if you remember, but in 2009, after President Obama was elected, there was a big spending bill, part of which was the High Tech Act, which incentivized clinicians to adopt some kind of meaningful use medical record. So there's this rush to the incumbents. And so at the time, the industry was maybe five, 10 years behind, and that probably put it another five years behind because the innovators through that kind of got quashed and there was an economic downturn and so forth. So anyway, um, so many good ideas, you know, even coming from the 90s that still, to my knowledge, have not seen the light of day of how software could be used as a tool for healing. So that's where I got the idea for Full Bay is in about 2012. And I had met uh, a guy who had a shop and we'd become friends. And um, it kind of opened my eyes to this whole thing about commercial trucks get fixed in these shops that are specifically built not to fix like your car or my car, but specifically for this heavy equipment. And there's actually tens of thousands of these out there uh, and they exist. That planted a seed when I met him. And a few years later, when I started to get this idea of, um, well, what if, uh, what if we built a medical record for trucks? We basically take the best ideas out there that are not seeing the light of day in the medical world and apply them in a different vertical, a different industry, apply them to truck repair, which you know, you might think, well, okay, that that kind of logically makes sense that you could apply it there, but it uh, it's too bad that you're not actually doing that work in the realm of medicine because you could actually save lives. Mm-hmm. Well, one thing we have come to discover is that with the skills gap, and I might be getting ahead of myself here, but with the skills gap, fewer and fewer people are going into diesel repair. Once again, who cares, right? There's fewer truck mechanics. Does that really matter? Well, the quantity of people going into diesel repair continues to fall, but the quantity of commercial vehicles on the road continues to rise. And the most recent year where data is available, 2019, there were about 11 fatalities a day involving commercial vehicles on the roads. And that's like us that Mm -hmm. are dying. Of those 11, two are drivers. But we estimate about four of those are related to improper maintenance on the vehicles. That's from 2019. And preliminary data from 2020 is showing Fatality has actually spiked, even though everybody was staying at home. Um, so it's actually higher now. So the reality is that uh, 
a poorly maintained vehicle on the road is a safety hazard. And every single day, people are dying from poorly maintained vehicles. So there is a public benefit to what we're doing. Um, and it's, you know, with the blue collar uh, shortage, skills gap and everything, it's actually getting worse. So we are helping to fill the gap, make shops more efficient and help them do more with what they have and keep more of these trucks maintained. So, you know, wheel off condition doesn't kill a, you know, college sophomore from Tulane who's heading to South Carolina in spring break, like that happened a couple of years ago. Stuff like that happens every day and doesn't even make the news. Mm-hmm. So anyway, that's, uh, that's kind of how it happened. And I met Brad and Heidi and came on at WebPT and that felt like a, almost like a graduate school education on how to build and scale a SaaS company and uh, found a great home there. Like everything went right with that company, right? Yeah. Well, they had good people yeah. running it. Yeah. You were involved, right? <laughs> you were there. Uh, I was not there. My firm was there. Okay. I, w- I was not uh, a member of the Canal Partners team when they made that. I, I didn't receive any dollars. But Okay. Uh, but you were, uh, you came, were you involved with uh, WebPT at all? So when I, on the board side? When I first, no. So when I first joined, mm-hmm. Um, within, I would say six month is when canal was selling their second round of secondaries to battery. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Should have held on (laughs) again. Didn't have a dog to fight in that one. No, I get it. But you're right. In hindsight, we sold too early. Yeah. You know, and so, you know, I sold too. Right. Exactly. Uh, you don't get rich. Uh, Oh no, I did hold on. I'm sorry. Oh, you did. Yeah. So the Warburg transaction oh. I was part of that. Okay. Very nice. Yeah, it was great. Yeah. I was very grateful. And, you know, WebPT uh falls in that category that I love, uh, vertical SaaS. Right. Right. Where, you know, you're selling to a very specific market segment or a vertical within a market um that uh you know may have a small total addressable market from mm-hmm. a venture capital standard you know, but uh, could reap great rewards. I mean, WebPT became a behemoth, right, in the space, and no one thought the space could even be that big. So would you want to talk a little bit about that, the organic versus the inorganic growth and sure. product development, wallet share, all that stuff? As far as what happened to WebPT or just the idea? Uh, what happened to WebPT and then, you know, how that, you know, transferred into into Full Bay and your, your love for vertical SaaS. So I was only at WebPT for... I think May 2012 to August 2014. So just over two years. And so in hindsight, I wasn't really there that long. Mm -hmm. Um, I was, I learned a lot, but um, so one of the things I learned was um, sales execution, right? So we had sales, not me, we being like the WebPT team had sales dialed in like a science. It became a numbers game. It's just this whole concept of, um, you know, demo, work to close and close, right? How many people can you get into the funnel to request a demo uh, in an inbound motion um, and so forth? And the whole idea of a vertical SaaS is that you create, you solve a problem in a vertical and then you go and sell it into that vertical. And it actually becomes in a way easier to do because you're not having to market to the entire population of the country, right? Mm-hmm through different tactics and we had really smart people on the marketing team who were able to figure out how to do uh, specific retargeting. Like I think at, at one point they had the retargeting code on the APTA website um, basically where uh, people would pick up a cookie and then you could directly advertise to them on Facebook. So instead of spending like 10 grand a month on Facebook, you and getting almost no results. You can spend $500 a month and get like 
you know, 10 demo requests right. from people who actually are, are qualified leads. So I learned that from WebPT. In fact, uh, the marketing team was so dialed in. It was this group of, geez, like eight or 10 people, very few of whom had marketing degrees, mm-hmm. uh, but they were smart people. They were like humanities majors, right? right. Smart people who can't find a job yeah, because, quirky, they were, because right. they were humanities majors, <laughs> yeah. right? Misfit kids. Yeah. So they had to like take some entry level thing and um, they really figured it out. And I remember uh, I had, uh, you know, Mike Manheimer, I had him in my office and he whiteboarded uh, the kind of the inbound strategy that WebPT used. And I took a picture of it. And later, because I knew I might need this later, right. so later, <laughs> like when I needed to do that at Foley, I just completely like did what we were doing at WebPT and, and it worked. So, so the numbers game, right, for vertical SaaS, it does become a numbers game. You just have sales reps. We just had them behind uh, a, a door in an office all day long demoing. And how many, it became a question of how many can one sales rep reasonably demo in one day before their performance starts to nosedive, right? Mm-hmm. How can you optimize for that? What um, was that number? Um, I think it was like four to five demos a day, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, so something like that could be a little bit less because they're doing follow-up also. And then eventually we hired people to do some of the follow-up on their behalf. And we have taken, I'm sure WebPT totally took that to many levels above that after I left, but that's where we started with full bay too. And we have totally blown that um, out of the water, like with uh, very precise metric tracking and knowing exactly which, you know, funnel lane a lead originally came into and how do we recapture them and put them back into the funnel and put people on that and the stuff that is happening there with uh, the sales operations um, over a full day right now is just mind-blowingly effective. It's just amazing. Like mm-hmm. they're setting record sales months every month. And um, I mean, we're dialing up spend, but um, I think we're really smart about it. So the genesis of that was, uh, was at WebPT. So. Yeah. And mostly, um, inbound sales, you're using marketing demand generation yeah. for this. So stepping back from the go to market on full bay, which was, was super scalable. Let's, I want to talk a little bit about, um, product market fit and yeah. you know, your, your journey into product market fit with full bay. Like, what did that look like? And like, how did you know you kind of achieved different levels of that? So when I, I mentioned that I took a, like a title demotion when I moved from L3 Harris to, to WebPT, like this fortune, literally fortune 500 company to a small startup in the warehouse district. Um, I wanted the CFO title, you know, cause I wanted to show career progression and they didn't want to give it to me. And in retrospect, I understand that because like, that's an officer of the company. Mm-hmm. There's like signatures that you, you know, it's, it's actually a big deal. It's not just a title, but I was naive. Um, they never gave it to me. I never was the CFO. Um, it kind of got dangled in front of me as a motivator, which uh, is understandable. But after a couple years there, I felt like I had made an impact. And after the battery investment, I knew that a new clock had started, that it was going to be another three to five years. So battery could get their three to five X return. Right? right. So it became a question of do I, so I came into WebPT um, at roughly the same revenue I came in to Carefix at. And then we exited at about the same revenues too. So I'd done the like four to 30 million thing mm-hmm. um, twice. So it became a question of, do I want to learn how to be a finance guy that goes from 30 to a hundred million in revenue? Or do I want to go make a run at it on my own and figure out how to go from zero to four 
And then from there, I know what to do. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So this was going on in my mind. The battery thing happened. And um, I made the choice to, I had an opportunity to buy into a shop. It didn't work out because uh, the financials were not as, uh, you know, as compelling as I thought they were. Um, and so I was kind of thinking, Hey, what if I go work in a shop that I buy into? So it's kind of like my thing and then do that while we get full bay ready for a launch, if that makes sense Mm -hmm. or like a, um, at least a minimum viable product that we can start selling. And so I did that. So in August, so August of 2014, uh, we, I, uh, resigned from WebPT. I gave notice, but, um, I resigned and uh, on Monday, I think it was Monday, August 25th, which was my birthday, my 35th birthday. Um, I started a shop and I worked in the shop for a year and got, so literally I gave up a bunch of options mm-hmm. from WebPT and took a much bigger pay cut. Um, <laughs> and, I, and probably a title <laughs> decrease. I had no title. Yeah, Maybe I was office manager right. or something. So like I was not executing on the whole title progression thing <laughs> no. at all. I was going the opposite direction. It's probably not good for my career if I hadn't worked out, <clears throat> but I had six kids at home though and mm-hmm. sole provider. My wife stays home with the kids and that was tough, but because of the care exit and then the battery transaction, I took some chips off the table with that. Sure. Super grateful for that with what, what was vested um, and then I also, by the way, when I left WebPT, I exercised every option I could, even though they had, um, non-qualified options, mm-hmm. which were taxable at exercise, which was so annoying. Yeah. That's Holy bad. Cow. But I knew that it would work out. So here I am like quitting my job. I exercise my options. I know I'm going to be stuck with a massive tax bill mm-hmm. and, um, I'm going to go to do this thing. So in retrospect, like it's crazy that I even did it, but, um, I'm glad I did the option exercise because that worked out with the Warburg transaction, but literally great job, quit my job to go work in a shop for a year to get some street credibility, firsthand experience, and to figure out how to get this, um, software application to a, you know, a sellable state and, uh, about a year so you convinced a guy to hire you to kind of do the front office yeah kind of yeah to pitch in where i could did you fix any trucks in the back no No. (laughs) i wish i could yeah i don't have the skill set my mind doesn't work like that my my son his mind works like that um he's actually studying computer science he can actually code that's a that's a a great that's a a very like high-tech skill i mean they they, they're trade schools specifically for diesel repairs yeah there are yeah yeah yeah, it, it's a skill. It's not like some people I think can innately do it, but you can be trained to do it. Um, mm-hmm. But I certainly wasn't. So I, tr- I helped out with uh, oil change a couple times just to see, like I put on the thing, the right. outfit and everything. But for the most part, I was helping in the office and um, trying to clean up the QuickBooks and and uh, convince them to shut down his truck leasing business and stuff like that. It's just, uh, it was an interesting experience. Um, but I was anxious to get, back into the software world. So I wanted to launch it um, and pushed hard for that. So by August of 2015, I was now completely without a net uh, working full-time on full bay. Um, and I think it was a Monday I was sitting on my bedroom floor cause I didn't even have a chair or a desk or anything. Mm-hmm. And I just started calling and we started not with an inbound strategy, but with a cold calling strategy. Like I had a list of shops that I obtained and I started calling into them, trying to get them to let me demo them software. And uh, yeah, I was trying to trying to make twenty five calls a day. At the same time, I was doing trying to 
do all the other stuff. Sure. So you, um, you know, you, you're in, you know, I could just imagine this little shitty office with stacks of paper and like triplicate forms. In the shop. Yeah. In the yeah. shop, you know, yeah, like it's these plastic sleeves, plastic sleeves, yeah. yep. you know, smells like cigarettes. You know, I, I, I can see it. I can envision it clearly. It's gritty. Yeah. It's yeah. gritty. So how did you think about building the MVP knowing that this is the, you know, these are blue collar guys, you know, from a sophistication standpoint, like what were you replacing? Like what was the kind of like the minimal features that you needed to yeah. show value to sell? How'd you think about pricing? Yeah. Um, well, let me just tell you about the grittiness. So public accounting is such an incredible education mm-hmm. because I, and maybe it was just the time that I came in because I graduated and started with Deloitte right when Sarbanes-Oxley hit. And so oh, they were okay. putting us all on these controls audits to, um, you know, you're supposed to audit the internal controls of the company and then we opine on that as well as giving an opinion on the financial statements. So you end up talking to people across the organization, including like in the warehouse or on the manufacturing line or whatever. So I had, you know, the, some great clients here in town, Taser, which is now called the body camera right. company. Mm-hmm. What are they called? Yeah, I forgot. Whatever. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Big police I, tech company. Yeah. Taser, Fender, um, discount tire and so forth. So I, you kind of get used to talking to, to a wide range of people and seeing through stuff like grittiness and trying to document the business processes. So in the shop is the same thing. Like it wasn't really any different than one of my audit clients back in the day. And I knew that I needed to basically like literally piece of paper flow chart, what is going on and so forth. So um, we identified that, uh, the biggest thing is we need to be able to create an invoice. So you have this plastic sleeve with a bunch of papers in it, which is like one of them is the original repair request from the customer, maybe written down detailed, usually not. And then you have a paper where the technician is writing what they think needs to happen. Another one where they're writing down the parts and all of this is like chicken scratch. Mm-hmm. So, and these packets are going back and forth between the tech and the parts person. And they're trying to like call and figure out where the parts are and, and then eventually the repair gets done and then that packet gets slapped onto a, in, onto a desk and it could be like two, three, four weeks before somebody actually gets to it and creates an invoice out of it to invoice the customer, which mm. is insane. So right. you have, this shop was like that, like any shop, they're like two weeks behind an invoice at least. And it creates a lot of problems because you have customers on account and you say you're chasing down a customer who's not paying. Yeah, these guys might be net 90 as well. Yeah, exactly. So maybe you, you, you like get the stick out and beat your customer to pay because they're late, but there's actually like two weeks worth of invoices that they don't even know about. And like maybe even overdue invoices that have yet to be created. So what would happen is like, you'd finally get the payment and then you send them an invoice that was also passed you and they didn't know about it. Nobody knew about it because it hadn't been invoiced. It's just such a mess. Right. So getting an invoice done fast, like almost at the point of sale um, was the goal. Like, can we actually get that? And, uh, what we built first was a repair request module so they could put it on their website so their customers could go and click a button and request a repair and it would show up as an email. It's mm-hmm. really simple, right? So they would print that out. That goes in the plastic packet. The goal then was how can we get everything else in the plastic packet into the cloud? Mm-hmm. And we built a work order. We call it a service order. So it got to the point where service request was submitted on the website and then the tech has a tablet and it pops up on the tablet. There's no more paper and they're just doing their documentation on the tablet parts guys back at the parts counter, usually on a laptop. 
As soon as a tech says they need a part, it pops up on the parts manager screen. They can start sourcing it while the tech is still there. Because every time the tech has to walk out of the bay, they lose a quarter hour of billable time, mm-hmm. which adds up. So it's that whole workflow from repair request all the way through to invoicing and collecting payment. We do credit card processing also. We streamline the whole thing. And uh, even today, we're constantly just making it better and better and better, just trying to make it super, incrementally super better. clean. Right. Yeah, exactly. And so uh, when, when you were building that, you know, you incorporated a bunch of different things. You know, you, you incorporated browser-facing interfaces. Yep. You incorporated mobile. You know, well, we never did do a mobile native app. Well, but you, but like you, but were, mobile, yeah, optimized you're, you're saying like this is not now you're using a, a tablet, right? Yeah, you know, and, tech needs a very uh, responsive design, right? Because it's going to be on a little screen, exactly. Yeah. And so, like, how did you think about pricing that? How did you think about yeah. having people adopt that and, and training Thanks, for yeah. that? So for the pricing, um, WebPT charged $49 a month per user. So I just made it $69. Mm-hmm. I just added 20 bucks to it. So, and that's still the price today. So you, you, price nailed <laughs> you, yeah. you nailed I mean, it. You nailed the price. For a while, it was swing. 75, but then we brought it da- back down. Like in the early days when I was getting desperate for a sale because I got one in September 2015 and then pretty much nothing until the end of December. And Kind of mid-November, Thanksgiving time, I realized I need to switch to an inbound strategy and drop this whole outbound calling thing, uh, even though we have it back now, but we have people who actually know how to do it. Um, I got desperate, so I knocked the price back down to 69 So, yeah, 69 a, a user. And then I was also, also initially charging $99 a month per shop location because you have these multi, multi-location shops. And mm-hmm. even if you just have one, it's 99 But I dropped that too. But after about a year, when I brought in... Um, uh, Chris O'Brien from WebPT, which is a coup for him to come over. He really, um, uh, I guess, believed in in us. Um, he convinced me, no, you have to charge that. I'm like, I don't know. People people push back, and he forced me to do it. And like today, that's like such a significant chunk of our revenue. So <laughs> I wish I could say that we did like this big pricing study, and we've done pricing studies since then uh, about whether our pricing is 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 optimal and so forth. But didn't I didn't I just took WebPT's price and added twenty dollars. Okay, so yeah, took a shot. Yeah. And so did, did your customers know they had a problem? Yes. Okay. So like yeah. you, you were, you were solving a, a big pain point for them. They weren't saying, well, this works good enough. Why am I paying for a cloud solution? Yeah. We were coming in where the incumbents were either green screen, essentially. There was oh. a couple incumbents that were heavy duty focused. So commercial repair focused, but most of them were softwares that were built for light duty repair, like an auto shop, mm-hmm. which is a B to C environment. Um, so we were like a, it's the Steve Jobs saying, we were like a glass of ice water in hell for these guys. Mm-hmm. Like it was so nice for them to see it. And when I would demo it, even though I wasn't like a professional salesperson, but when I would demo it to people, um, they loved it almost universally. Could I get them to close? Not necessarily. Right. But because I wasn't that good of a salesperson, but um, almost universally, people were blown away by what we had built because we didn't we didn't go look at the incumbents and like tweak it. We fundamentally looked at the problem and said, "How can we solve this problem?" Like, um, I never went and demoed some other software or whatever. So, what the shop had in place was this. They, they had it even worse. They had this fleet management software that was built for like a like a small fleet of trucks. Um, they might that might have a little internal repair shop. It's not really built for invoicing. It was like instead of having like calculated fields, it was like, all right, now type in what the tax is. Now type in this. Nothing's calculated automatically. It was just ridiculous. So we replaced that in the shop, and um, 
it was just uh, we had this hidden industry that nobody really knew existed that was have like so underserved by technology. And we came in and gave them a modern solution and it blew, blew people away. They loved it. Yeah. And so, you know, you said your minimal viable product was a workflow solution that took away, you know, triplicate forms, a plastic, you know, kind of binder. Yep. What, uh, you know, I'm sure you continue to advance the features to include things like you said, just an ERP. So inventory management, right? Yeah. It's funny. The shop that I was working in didn't really track inventory. And uh, the owner was convinced that, uh, you know, we didn't need an inventory module. It turns out that's, that's like the only shop I've ever run into that didn't track inventory. <laughs> I mean, there's others. And he, they did track some, a little bit, but it wasn't like a priority. So when we took it to market, there was no inventory module. And we had to rush to build that because we couldn't sell it without it. Right. So, yeah. Um, so we added inventory. We added uh, payments. Uh, at first, we just did an authorized.net integration because I didn't, I didn't want to like be that guy that was ripping people off with credit card payments. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I, we, you know, you, you try to do the right thing. So we just did it that because it's a, it's a pass through. So basically you, you keep your own processor and you can just connect it to authorize.net and keep processing. What we discovered was, well, these people are getting ripped off and we got to a point where we were big enough that we could like save them from that. And make good money. You can make it. You could actually pick up the phone if they had a problem. You could service them. Exactly. Right? That too. So it's not just the money. It's the service. So we ended up doing an integration with WorldPay, and then uh, we became a PayFac uh, ourselves. And it's it's pretty cool because they, and I'm not just saying this, they're literally paying less money, and we're making good money. It's a win-win. Yeah. So, totally works. Totally works. So stuff like that. And so you're dealing with an SMB. So what's a typical budget for a diesel mechanic shop? For software, um, or just like the revenue? Yeah, just the revenue. The average shop is doing a hundred thousand a month okay. in revenue, but it varies widely. There's not a lot of huge quantities of location shops. There's not yeah. a lot of consolidation. Very segmented market. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, about a hundred thousand a month. Right. So we're talking SMB all day. For sure. Right. Yeah. How did you get through the implementation process and getting all of that data into your system in a scalable, capital efficient way? Well, the good news was all these incumbent systems that were built for light duty were basically just access databases with a, with a different front end. So that was super easy. So we wrote scripts that could just consume their data and import it into the software. Um, so that was good. People wanted us to come on site to train sure. them. Yeah, why not? And we, yeah. tried, we tried that a few times, but uh, they're, like basically what keeps them from being able to do training remote also keeps them from having effective on-site training. Like they're not, they typically don't set aside the time and they just want you to like like train their people while they're doing their job. Like right. it just doesn't work. And the price point that we're at, I mean, the average shop paying us for like, you know, 500 bucks a month or whatever. And it ends up being like, you can't justify a multi-day cross country training no. thing um, without charging them. And they don't want to pay it because the, I mean, it's like 1500 bucks a day just to cover your costs. Right. Mm -hmm. when, you, when you consider it. So um, we got really good at training remotely and then putting self-service training inside the app, guided training, um, badges, gamification, stuff like that. And we're, I mean, we have some really great training people in the organization today that uh, have obviously taken this to another level, but you have to be able to do it remote. Like you can't go on site. No. You just can't do it. I mean, if there's a consultant that's like out there helping shops, they could become certified theoretically, but mm -hmm. uh, it's not sustainable mm -hmm. So for and SMB. And so you built um, you know, a company, Great usability. It's flying off the shelves as you're demoing it, and you're bootstrapped. Yeah, 
And I think you were bootstrapped, maybe, I forgot how much it was, it was single-digit revenues, I, I, you know, millions of singles. We bootstrapped up to, um, geez, I can't, I don't know. like wanna, $4 million, right? Something like that. Yeah. yeah. And <clears throat> I remember, you know, my previous firm, Canal, I think we sent you a term sheet. I don't think you replied to us. I, I totally replied. <laughs> I was honored. After you were done throwing up in your trash can, you know, <laughs> you gave us a call. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't totally market. But I, I think I told you guys that. I know. Did, you did. Okay. Yeah, great, you great. did. You yeah, did. it was an honor. But honestly, uh, I, that was interesting. Um, you guys were very gracious to give us a term sheet and stuff. But um, what's interesting is, and I've, I've talked to people at Battery about this, but um, I was there, I left, and you would think that, I don't have any hard feelings about this. I mean, it's fine. It worked out. But you would think that there would be more keep tracking, keeping me on the radar so that if it took off, like I would have given battery the deal if they'd come to me, 100%. But, they, but they never, they never, they came late in the process. And I was like, Hey, this is great. Like here, here are the terms and everything like that, but they never moved on it. And I don't know if they had their reasons or just the process didn't, couldn't go fast enough, but uh, uh, I'm glad I stayed in touch with canal and had it been like, like more like comparable to other things. I mean, yeah, def- I would definitely give it more weight because of the history there. Yeah, right? no, absolutely. So, anyway. Absolutely. I think, so I think the firms could do better. So I remember, and I completely agree with you. I mean, the whole, I mean, it's amazing. I talked to so many firms and I, sh- I love main sale by the way. Don't get yeah. me wrong. No, no. Yeah. yeah. I talked to so many firms and, um, you know, I try to send them deals, which, you know, aren't at the 3 million, mark but there might be at a two million dollar mark yeah and they're like well they're not big enough i'm like bro they're gonna be that they're gonna be three million in six months like why aren't you talking to well them? yeah i mean if you take a look at it the, as long as the fundamentals are sound it's just a matter of running that playbook right a real operator's playbook you can grow it it's just a matter of time correct as long as churn churn is under control and you're executing on sales it's just a matter of time so there's something that i remember vividly and i tell the story to founders all the time and because I remember I was doing some initial work and diligence on full bay. I re- looked at your, I looked at your model. Okay. Right. And for a finance guy, your, your model is very simple. Like it wasn't right. super complicated. There weren't 50 tabs on it. Right. right. Yep. Um, and I remember I scrolled down a little bit and then in one cell, it said never hire more than 16 people. <laughs> Was it 16? Yeah. And, yeah. I, and I was just like, I was like, that is awesome. Because that was a, a note to self that like process over people. Yeah. Yeah. That um, So loved the time at WebPT. And you always, part of the reason I ended up going to another startup to WebPT was because I had this desire to do it again and not repeat the same mistakes. Right. So um, that worked at WebPT. One of the things there that we did really well was leaning out processes and, Chris was, you know, instrumental in that. So we, we were, you know, simpatico on, we are like, we're totally on the same page of tools before hires. Sure. Cause like, uh, even a small company, uh, a small company will look at like a $3,000 a month software tool and be like, holy cow, there's no way we're doing that tool. Right. But they have no problem hiring an employee at $15 an hour. That, that $15 an hour employee is costing you more than 3000 a month. So if you can install a tool that keeps you from having to hire like two or three people, you do that deal all day long. And that was the approach that we took. So enterprise Salesforce from the get-go and um, all the software tools that we knew that we needed based on our experience at WebPT, we just put in. And that has continued to be the philosophy um, to this day. And yeah, I I still have this theory that you could, 
It's the 37 Signals or Basecamp concept, right? Those guys over there, do you know them? Um, uh, I, I know the company. I, yeah, don't know, yeah. I don't know that, that theory. Their philosophy is, uh, I think they just, I mean, I don't know how many they have now, but at the time, I think they had like 30 or 40 employees and their revenue was like, I don't know, 30 million, 40 yeah, million, something right. like that. So I think it's doable. So if you put the right scalable processes in place, like theoretically, you could have a, you could have a SaaS company that employs nobody but theoretically, but developers. Mm-hmm. You could with product-led growth and all developers and product people, I guess. Because um, PLG could take the sales and the marketing could be organic and, you know, like a Tesla type approach where you don't supposedly spend on marketing. Um, so that was the philosophy, tools before hires. And yeah, unfortunately, we've blown past that number. <laughs> but you're a lot bigger but than it's that, okay. too. I mean, theoretically, uh, you, it's okay to... Every person that you hire changes the culture of the company. So you have to deal with that. And also, you start to have bad hires and you have to deal with these people, right? Um, it gets annoying. Like I, you end up having these long conversations and the problem solving about a person that you hired instead of like solving the problem for the customer. So if you can avoid hiring people, you're avoiding problems. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. And you know, I think there's, I think there's something and it might not be intentional, but there's like an ego thing about hiring people. You know, the more people, the more activity, the more important. Yeah. <laughs> so we, so what PT, when we hit 100 employees, we gave everybody a $100 bill because uh, it was a milestone. Mm-hmm. But it, it got me thinking, and I know Chris was thinking, and uh, not to say that Brad and Heidi were, like didn't think this way too. It was like, well, maybe that's not the best metric to celebrate because people were like, oh, I can't wait till we get to 200 employees. And I heard somebody <laughs> say that, and I was like, no way. Yeah. There's no way we are celebrating that. Yeah. <laughs> and so Chris felt the same way. So um, yeah, it's uh, you got to be careful, I guess, which metrics you celebrate. Um, and you see a lot of these startup companies that raise capital before they have product market fit, before they even have a customer. They're raising money and they're burning. And I, I can understand that if they're like focused on solving a problem. But I mean, I've, I've interacted with companies where like the founder CEO, they pre revenue founder CEO, like won't even go back and forth over email with me to set up a meeting. They have to go through their assistant. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Right. Like, <laughs> they, don't, they don't have any revenue, right? Like I, or their chief of staff. Yeah, yeah, something like that. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, I can completely see that um, every hire you have has a um, an effect on your culture. You know, and there's also something about, I think, founders that uh, there's always a sense of scarcity, uh, of urgency, that they need these people right away. But, you know, to your point, and to just unpack that a little bit more, you're not really strategically thinking about what the problem is for the company, right? You're not sitting back and saying, you know, okay, we have this problem because of this. It's not because of time. It's because, well, we do this in a stupid way. Uh, yeah, right. Correct. Right. You're talking about solving problems. In solving problems within yeah. a company and like not just executing your face off. So yeah. like how do you balance the execution and the strategy and like not overthinking and not overdoing? You're talking about like throwing bodies at problems, throwing bodies at problems, and not just stopping to sit back and saying like, okay, do we have product market fit? Do we not have product market fit? Okay, so <laughs> do we have you know do we have go to market fit? Do we not have go to market fit? What's I, working? I, what's not working? I think the best way to tell if you have product market fit is are people buying your stuff? Right. So if you're pre revenue, you don't know. Right. Right. So you got to get to that point as fast as possible. Hence the and I know there's dissent about the MVP, um, whatever, but like you have to get to a point where you can you can sell something to people, and then. I really like the book Running Lean, and mm-hmm. I kind of used that as a Bible when I was building Full Bay. It's the whole concept of 
starting a company is just a matter of going from plan A to a plan that actually works before you run out of money. <laughs> right. So plan A is not going to work, but you still have to do plan A because you have to start. Right. You have to do something. And um, by the way, on the financial plan, you're right. Like being a finance guy, it's tempting to go super complicated. And at Carefax, um, I had responsibility over the financial plan by the time I, was, I left. And it was pretty complicated. WebPT, one thing I learned there uh, from Paul was that you could go super complex, but you're probably going to end up with the same conclusion as you would on a simple one. So just keep it simple. Mm-hmm. Right. And so we did the same thing. And he was a metrics day. junkie. Yeah. Very, very effective. Um, and uh, to this day, like I've done plans so much that, you know, give me an hour and I could whip up a financial plan for you, for your company with all three financial statements tied together and they enter like a closed circuit. It works. It tells you what your cash will be in October if you do this investment. And it's because we keep it simple. And we actually started giving that kind of thing to the shop so they could plan out their financials. Mm-hmm. I was just speaking yesterday um, about that at a trade show. So yeah, it's, it's important to keep it simple and not go crazy. And I'm surprised how many startups don't have any plan, probably because they think it has to be super complicated. Right. So, right. They don't want to narrow their options. They don't want to narrow their focus because it gives them less flexibility. Yeah, exactly. So I have, a, I, I, I'll, I give my template out freely. To sure. People. Like, yeah. Here you go. Yeah, it'll help you. No, so. it's great. It's like for me, if I want to, you know, close three or four deals this year, I need to look at five hundred companies. So go yeah. find five hundred companies. The, it's your funnel. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> you know what I mean. That's like, all it boils yeah, down pick to. up, pick up the phone, bro, it's and like dial. Yep. Yeah, exactly. and and that's that will lead to more people, more connections, and then it's got this kind of forward, you know, effect. Yep. To it, so you get to you know, uh, you know, four million, five million. You raise some capital from main sale. And yep. it's a it's a recap, right? So it's a recap. Yeah. So explain to the audience what a recap is, how that affects you. Yeah. And when you took that deal, were you concerned about market size with you and and within valuation and your second bite at the apple and all of that? Um, you live in a constant state of paranoia as an entrepreneur, <laughs> so of course, yeah, I'm sure yeah, exactly. I was concerned about all that. But um, I knew that there. So when I was at WebPT, we thought that there were about thirty thousand physical therapy clinics out there in the U.S. And I knew that there was about at least that many diesel repair shops. So I thought it was okay. I was going to be okay um, because, you know, people are investing in WebPT. I'd be okay going to this other vertical that was roughly the same size. It turns out it's like 60,000. And um, it's even more depending on, you know, what you add in. But yeah, I worried about that. Uh, The way the, so Mainsail likes to come in and do these majority transactions. um, And we weren't looking to do that, but we we needed to raise, I was buying out uh, a partner and so I had a note that I had to pay off and um, we were going to, we were putting some cash on the balance sheet and so forth. So it depends on how you do it, but um, we took some chips off the table. You know, we were able to, you know, pay down our mortgages and stuff like that. Um, But uh, we got a lot of term sheets. I was really happy with it. One of them being from canal, but um, Maysell gave us a super clean term sheet, great valuation, uh, which, and I liked, um, I like the terms because they basically basically put us on equal footing where if they win, we win. Like mm-hmm. there's no way that they win where we don't win also. And that was really good. And uh, so. Uh, and they did that with valuation, you know, and they basically gave their investment parameters and they said, if you hit this number, we make this, you make this, you hit this number, you make this, you make this. It's even simpler than that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. How'd it go? Like how'd the conversation go? Uh, they came in late in the process. So apparently um, when we decided to raise, we decided to start the process in January of 2019. Mm -hmm. And I didn't call, I didn't cold call any 
funds, um, you, you're always getting contacted. I was, I would always, I would write it down in a spreadsheet who I talked to from what fund I would always take those calls right from the associate. Um, what's your fund size, what's your check size, what are you guys looking for? So on and so forth. So when we were ready to raise, I went through my list and just reached out to everybody. And I was like, Hey, we're going to do it. If you're interested, here's the date that we're targeting for a term sheet. Or I told them that at some point, um, I did the Clayton mask approach, mm-hmm. the 12, six, three, one. Anyway, um, main sale somehow when I talked to them, I never wrote them down on the spreadsheet, but I talked to them a year earlier and uh, apparently I had given them numbers, number projections, which were lower than what we actually hit. And so uh, they came in randomly late in the process. I still don't know how they came in. They must've been tipped off somehow, mm-hmm. but uh, we gave them the numbers and so forth, gave them access to the data room and everything. And uh, apparently we had blown past the numbers that I projected a year earlier and they were super interested and they came in, you know, with a, uh, Superior valuation, clean term sheet. We liked them, the cultural fit. Uh, we still like them. Um, they've done everything that they said they would do. So, uh, so yeah, that's how it worked. And so eventually you decided that you wanted to kind of step out of the CEO seat? Yeah, well, when we first started building Fullby the company, um, and, you know, I was without a safety net, August 2015, it was just me and David, and we weren't, uh, we weren't, we were burning savings at the time. Um, mm-hmm. So it was just me and David. We bootstrapped. So David wore the developer hat um, and leadership. Uh, he's good with numbers. He's an econ major, has an MBA. Um, but I wore like the other 10 hats. So product development, QA, um, sales, marketing, support, onboarding, finance. I was doing all of that. And um, as we grew and we had the cash available, I obviously I would hire somebody to take over that position that was superior to me. Right. You will always want to hire people that are better than you at the role. Um, in fact, you know, we hired a finance guy, um, after we took the investment and he's better than me, mm-hmm. which is great. Yeah. Which is really good. So, um, I never got into this to be a CEO. I, I've never had the ambition to be a CEO. I, I, I think when I was younger in my career, I was hoping to maybe be the CFO of a public company or something. And, mm-hmm. um, but I did the best that I could. But I knew that somebody with more energy and potentially experience working in vertical SaaS could come in and out-execute me. So just like I wrote, you know, I drew the blog art in the early days. But today we have professional graphic designers that are like, you can't even compare what I right. did to what they do in the same way. Um, as I delegate all those roles, the CEO was the last role that I, I had to delegate and I was able to delegate it to somebody who can execute better than me, I believe. Mm-hmm. And he's doing a great job. So I'm an investor first and I don't want to hold on to like the CEO title for some kind of power or ego or anything like that. Cause, um, it turns out that titles are truly meaningless to me. Like I, I wanted that CFO title, at WebPT didn't get it. By the way, I have like tripped up and inadvertently called the role CFO in the past, which uh, I've learned <laughs> should not do. Right. Thinking of it as a role, not a title, but, um, but I, I wasn't, uh, it wasn't an issue for me. And I'm really grateful to, to be able to, to delegate that and uh, be on the board and have that kind of influence. And um, I think, I think it's best for the company and best for me as an investor, best for our customers. So, we just want to execute at the highest level that we can. So. That's awesome. It was my idea too. Yeah. No. It was not pushed on me by the board at all. Yeah. Um, that's awesome. 
That's super cool. And what a great, what a great end to this chapter, right? In your life. So what's next? So looking back, I served a Mormon mission, got back in 2000. And basically um, from then to 2007 was like the seven year period of my life, right? Where I finished up school, um, worked in public accounting and uh, worked for Carefax, graduated from that. And then another, the next seven year period was WebPT, um, sorry, Carefax and WebPT. So seven, 2007, I end public accounting at the end of the first seven year period. Then WebPT and Carefax was the next and I just finished seven years with full bay. So it's like this, uh, it's like in the Bible, you have like these seven year periods, mm-hmm. right? Or whatever. I have no idea, but, uh, I'm now in the next seven years and, uh, I have an itch definitely to try try it again in the future. But right now I'm wholly focused on making sure full bay is successful that we're, that, you know, we're executing, solving the right problems for the customers. And, um, I really like the safety implication of what we're doing, the public safety implication, it feels really good. And so getting that message out and raising the profile of the industry is really important to me. So you still surfing? Uh, I have not gone forever. <laughs> and uh, I think I it's to time drop a few pounds before I do it. Yeah, I know it is. It is time. You can do that like week long thing in Costa Rica where they like hammer it into you. Cause I'm, I'm about as good as you can expect somebody from Arizona. Yeah. You know, if you ever seen North shore. Right. Yeah. Uh, I think that surfing is a great workout. Yeah, and, you know, I mean, I, I I get destroyed, and yeah. it's so tired after I do it. Um, I like it. Like, I, I my boards that I stand on though are like as big as this room, it's like a boat. And then yeah. you get, so you get caught in the impact zone. You're not even getting out there. Yeah, yeah no. that, that happens. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. But I just yeah. can't get up otherwise. You know, if only we had an uh, an ocean in Arizona. Yeah, would be nice. Exactly. Things would be a lot easier. Thank you, Jacob. So for coming in, uh, I got a couple quick can questions for you. What is your favorite book? Business book, definitely running lean. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, book overall, geez. Uh, have you ever read The Road? It's super depressing, but super impactful. I think so. Say that one. Yeah, it's kind of like a dystopian kind yeah. of work. Yeah. There's something about it that was just, just really impacted me. So for fiction, it would be, it would be that. Okay. And then uh, what's the best piece of business advice you've ever gotten? Best piece of business advice I've ever gotten. You want to succeed in business identify a problem, solve it, and then sell it. Nice. Like it. And are there any uh, companies you've got a crush on, you investor in, you know, that you think are just going to be on fire? Uh, Here here locally or just in general? Doesn't matter. I mean, I do the traditional investments, you know, S&P and uh, NASDAQ 100 and stuff. But uh, locally, um, I'm invested in Better Agency. Mm, That's a good one. one. Yeah, and... Obviously, I'm looking for other investments, too. Mm-hmm. Right on. Yeah. Right on. Maybe you can help me with that, David. <laughs> I think I can help you with that. Okay, I got some good ones in the pipeline. Awesome. All right. Thank you so much, everybody. That, again, is Jacob Finley from Full Bay. And we are on um, all the big platforms, iTunes, Spotify, the Amazon one that I don't know the name of. And uh, we drop an episode every Tuesday. If you like what you heard, please share. Please subscribe. Tell your friends. Leave a review. And I will see you all next week. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in to the Capital Stack Podcast. Make sure to share this with someone you know that can benefit from this content. Remember to support this show by rating, reviewing, and subscribing. David Paul is the founder and general partner at DWP Capital. All opinions expressed by David and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of DWP Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for decisions. 
David and guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed on this podcast. 